0: Today I'll be reading the opinion of the court in Wilkins v. United States, decided March 28, 2023. Justice Sotomayor delivered the opinion of the court, in which Justices Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson joined. Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion, in which Chief Justice Roberts, and Justice Alito joined. Larry Stephen Wilkins and Jane Stanton wanted quiet titles and a quiet road. Wilkins and Stanton, the petitioners here, both live alongside Robbins Gulch Road in rural Montana. The United States has permission called an easement for use of the road, which the government interprets to include making the road available for public use. Petitioners allege that the road's public use has intruded upon their private lives, with strangers trespassing, stealing, and even shooting Wilkins' cat. Petitioners sued over the scope of the easement under the Quiet Title Act, which allows challenges to the United States' rights in real property. Invoking the Act's 12-year time limit, 28 U.S.C. Section 2409A-G, the government maintains that the suit is jurisdictionally barred. Petitioners counter, and the court holds that Section 2409A-G is a non-jurisdictional claims-processing rule. Part 1. Robbins Gulch Road runs through about a mile of private property. Petitioners acquired their properties along the road in 1991 and 2004. Back in 1962, petitioners' predecessors in interest had granted the United States an easement for the road. The government contends that the easement includes public access, which petitioners dispute. On petitioners' telling, the easement does not allow access to the general public and requires the government to maintain and patrol the road. In 2018, petitioners brought suit under the Quiet Title Act. The government moved to dismiss the action on the ground that the act's 12-year time limit had expired. Under the act, any civil action except for an action brought by a state shall be barred unless it is commenced within twelve years of the date upon which it accrued. Accrual occurs on the date the plaintiff or his predecessor in interest knew or should have known of the claim of the United States. The parties disagreed as to whether the act's time limit is jurisdictional, which is relevant to the procedures for litigating whether Section 2409A.G., Barr's Petitioner's Claim The District Court agreed with the government and dismissed the case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the dismissal for lack of jurisdiction. Applying circuit precedent, the Court of Appeals held that this court had already interpreted Section 2409-AG as jurisdictional in Block v. North Dakota x Board of University and School Lands, 1983. This further entrenched a divide among the courts of appeals. This court granted certiorari to resolve the split and now reverses the Ninth Circuit's judgment. Part 2 Section A Jurisdiction, this court has observed, is a word of many, too many meanings. In particular, this court has emphasized the distinction between limits on the classes of cases a court may entertain, subject matter jurisdiction, and non-jurisdictional claim processing rules, which seek to promote the orderly progress of litigation by requiring that the parties take certain procedural steps at certain specified times. The latter category generally includes a range of threshold requirements that claimants must complete, or exhaust, before filing a lawsuit. To police this jurisdictional line, this court will treat a procedural requirement as jurisdictional only if Congress clearly states that it is. This principle of construction is not a burden courts impose on Congress. To the contrary, this principle seeks to avoid judicial interpretations that undermine Congress's judgment. Loosely treating procedural requirements as jurisdictional risks undermining the very reason Congress enacted them. Procedural rules often seek to promote the orderly progress of litigation within our adversarial system. Limits on subject matter jurisdiction, in contrast, have a unique potential to disrupt the orderly course of litigation. Branding a rule as going to a court's subject matter jurisdiction alters the normal operation of our adversarial system. For purposes of efficiency and fairness, our legal system is replete with rules like forfeiture, which require parties to raise arguments themselves and to do so at certain times. Jurisdictional bars, however, may be raised at any time, and courts have a duty to consider them sua sponte. When such eleventh-hour jurisdictional objections prevail post-trial or on appeal, many months of work on the part of the attorneys and the court may be wasted. Similarly, doctrines like waiver and estoppel ensure efficiency and fairness by precluding parties' From raising arguments they had previously disavowed. Because these doctrines do not apply to jurisdictional objections, parties can disclaim such an objection only to resurrect it when things go poorly for them on the merits. Given this risk of disruption and waste that accompanies the jurisdictional label, courts will not lightly apply it to procedures Congress enacted to keep things running smoothly and efficiently. Courts will also not assume that in creating a mundane claims processing rule, Congress made it unique in our adversarial system by allowing parties to raise it at any time and requiring courts to consider it sui sponte. Instead, traditional tools of statutory construction must plainly show that Congress imbued a procedural bar with jurisdictional consequences. Under this clear statement rule, the analysis of Section 2409-A-G is straightforward. In applying the clear statement rule, we have made plain that most time bars are non-jurisdictional. Nothing about Section 2409 ags text or context, gives reason to depart from this beaten path. Section 2409A.G. states that an action shall be barred unless it is commenced within twelve years of the date upon which it accrued. This text speaks only to a claim's timeliness, and its mundane statute of limitations language says only what every time bar, by definition, must, that after a certain time, a claim is barred. Further, this Court has often explained that Congress's separation of a filing deadline from a jurisdictional grant indicates that the time bar is not jurisdictional. The Quiet Title Act's jurisdictional grant is in 28 U.S.C. Section 1346F, well afield of Section 2409AG, and nothing conditions the jurisdictional grant on the limitations period or otherwise links those separate provisions. Section 2409AG, therefore, lacks a jurisdictional clear statement. Section B the government does not focus on the text of Section 2409 AG, but instead points to a trilogy of decisions by this court that purportedly establish that the provision is jurisdictional. None of these three decisions definitively interpreted Section 2409 AG as jurisdictional. This court has made clear That it will not undo a definitive earlier interpretation of a statutory provision as jurisdictional without due regard for principles of stare decisis. At the same time, however, courts, including this court, have more than occasionally misused the term jurisdictional to refer to non jurisdictional prescriptions. If a decision simply states that the court is dismissing for lack of jurisdiction when some threshold fact has not been established, it is understood as a drive-by jurisdictional ruling that receives no precedential effect. The government begins with Block v. North Dakota XREL Board of University and School Lands, The case presented two separate issues about the Quiet Title Act, neither of which was whether the 12-year limit was jurisdictional. First, the court held that the act was the exclusive procedure for challenging the title of the United States to real property. Second, the court held that the 12-year limit applied to states. It was only in the opinion's conclusion that... In remanding, the court remarked that if the time limit applied, the courts below had no jurisdiction to inquire into the merits. The opinion contains no discussion of whether the provision was technically jurisdictional or what in the case would have turned on that characterization. There is nothing more than an unrefined disposition stating that a threshold fact must be established for there to be jurisdiction. This is a textbook drive-by jurisdictional ruling that Arba held should be accorded no precedential effect as to whether a limit is jurisdictional. In an effort to endow a fleeting statement with lasting significance, the government and the dissent invoke historical context. Bloch described the act's time limit as a condition on the waiver of sovereign immunity. Bloch never stated, however, that the act's time limit was therefore truly a limit on subject matter jurisdiction. Yet according to the government and the dissent, this went without saying because the case law at the time was unmistakably clear that conditions on waivers of immunity or subject matter jurisdictional. This reading is undermined by the very history on which it draws. In Irwin v. Department of Veterans Affairs, 1990, the court surveyed the case law about whether time limits in suits against the government are subject to equitable tolling, waiver, and estoppel. If associating time limits with waivers of sovereign immunity clearly made those limits jurisdictional, equitable exceptions would be just as clearly foreclosed. Instead, Irwin described the court's approach to this question as ad hoc and unpredictable, leaving open whether equitable exceptions were available in any given case. Accordingly, Even if a statute of limitations was a condition of the waiver of sovereign immunity and thus must be strictly construed, this still did not answer the question whether equitable tolling can be applied to this statute of limitations. The court instead analyzed the specific statutory scheme at issue with varying results. Block itself reflected the ambivalent nature of time limits for suits against the government. Bloch recognized that we should not construe such a time-bar provision unduly restrictively, which the court quoted just a few years later in support of the proposition that some such limits are subject to equitable tolling. Similarly, while Bloch cautioned that exceptions to such time limits will not be lightly implied, it did not hold they were categorically precluded. Bloch thus acknowledged nothing more than a general proposition, echoed by Irwin, that a condition to the waiver of sovereign immunity must be strictly construed. In Irwin, as elsewhere, this did not mean that time limits accompanying such waivers are necessarily jurisdictional. Next, the government offers United States v. Matas, 1986. Once again, the question presented was not whether the Quiet Title Act's 12-year time limit was technically jurisdictional. The court instead had to decide which of two possible statutory time bars applied. This analysis proceeded in two steps. First, the court asked which of several federal statutes, the Quiet Title Act, the Allotment Acts, or the Tucker Act, was the source of jurisdiction based on the nature of the plaintiff's claim and the relief sought. The court explained that the Quiet Title Act applied because it was the exclusive means by which adverse claimants could challenge the United States' title to real property, and the plaintiff's claim fell within the act's scope. Second, the court then determined whether the suit was brought within the relevant limitations period. The court concluded that the plaintiff had notice over twelve years before she sued, and her claim was therefore barred. Neither step in the court's analysis turned on whether any time limits were technically jurisdictional. General statements in the opinion about waivers of immunity cannot change this basic fact. At the outset of its analysis, the court observed that the terms of the United States' waiver of sovereign immunity define the extent of the court's jurisdiction, and that a statute of limitations constitutes a condition on the waiver. Neither of these statements, however, played a role in determining which statute applied, or whether the plaintiff brought her claim within 12 years after it accrued. There is also no indication in the opinion that the parties raised tolling or other equitable exceptions. As such, the legal character of the time limit was never at issue. The government also points to Mataz's procedural background section. Buried in a paragraph recounting a tangled procedural history, the court remarked, that the government raised the Quiet Title Act, apparently, for the first time, in a petition for rehearing. This supposedly reveals that the court suesponte and sub silentio, raised, considered, and rejected an argument that the government had forfeited the Quiet Title Act's time limit, doing so all because the time limit was jurisdictional. Yet, a background section is an unlikely place for such a ruling. This is particularly true where, as the word apparently indicates, the court did not pause over its passing remark. Nor did the court mention this again. Further, even if the court had secretly considered forfeiture, there were non-jurisdictional reasons the court could have concluded forfeiture did not apply. Speculating about what this court might have thought about arguments it never addressed needlessly introduces confusion. This court looks for definitive interpretations, not holdings in hiding. Finally, there is United States v. Beggarly, 1998. The court in Beggerly addressed whether Section 2409-AG could be equitably tolled. The subject matter jurisdiction, as noted, is never subject to equitable tolling. If Bloch and Mottes had definitely interpreted Section 2409-AG as subject matter jurisdictional, the court could have just cited those cases And ended the matter without further discussion. Instead, the court parsed the provision's text and context, concluding that by providing that the statute of limitations will not begin to run until the plaintiffs knew or should have known of the claim of the United States, the law has already effectively allowed for equitable tolling. Also relevant were the unusually generous time limit and the importance of clarity when it comes to land rights. This careful analysis of whether the text and context were consistent with equitable tolling would have been wasted words if the Court had already held that Section 2409A.G. was jurisdictional. Precisely because the court's inquiry was so focused on the particular nature of equitable tolling. Beggerly also did not address whether other exceptions, such as fraudulent concealment or equitable estoppel, might apply, as Justice Stevens noted in his concurrence. If anything, Beggerly's discussion of non jurisdictional reasons why tolling specifically was unavailable, indicates the court understood Section 2409A.G. not to be jurisdictional. Thus, Beggarly undermines any notion that Bloch and Matas had put the jurisdictional question to rest. All three cases, therefore, point in one direction— this Court has never definitively interpreted Section 2409A.G. as jurisdictional. For similar reasons, the government's argument about legislative acquiescence is unavailing. Congress amended the Act in 1986 to provide special rules for states in the wake of Block. Then, as now, none of our decisions established that the time limit was jurisdictional, so there was no definitive judicial interpretation to which Congress could acquiesce. The mere existence of a decision employing the term jurisdiction without elaboration does not show Congress adopted that view. Nor can the government's handful of lower court opinions stand in for a ruling of this court, especially where some of these decisions contain only fleeting references to jurisdiction. All told, neither this Court's precedents nor Congress's actions established that Section 2409-AG is jurisdictional. While the government warns that revisiting precedent results in uncertainty, no revisiting is necessary here far more uncertainty would follow from the government's method of divining definitive interpretations from stray remarks. Section 2409A.G. is a non-jurisdictional claims processing rule. The Court of Appeals' contrary judgment is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.